Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 16 on the War of the Jewels. This is intended to be the penultimate session um, on the War of the Jewels. We will see, uh, we'll see how we go along here. Uh, tonight, we're going to focus pretty much entirely on the Tale of Years uh, near the end uh, of the War of the Jewels. Next time, we'll get to the... Um, uh, to his uh, that final that final essay, um, Quendi and Eldar, um, the highly linguistic essay uh, there at the end. Um, so we'll do that. Um, uh, we'll do that next time. <laughs> yes, as several of you are pointing out, it is in fact my birthday today. Um, but uh, happy to uh, to share my birthday with you. Talking about War of the Jewels, um, man, it, it has been. A long time um, in real time. I know for people who are watching this later, this is just the next session on, uh, session on the playlist. Uh, in real time, it's been a while uh, since our previous session. Um, so, um, what I'm gonna I'm gonna go backwards a little bit. We had started doing the comparison of the the text. He did essentially four versions um, with some additions, you know, in there um, of the Tale of Years, and uh, I want to look at. Um, the development and evolution of the Tale of Years um, for a couple reasons there. Uh, so uh, so I'm going to go back to the beginning of Stage A and kind of go through those again because I know I am not going to retain all of the um, all the details of the things we were looking at at the very end last time. Um, but just to recall you to what to sort of the setup of what we're looking at there. Um, he had... You remember the overall flow of the way that his writing had been going, right? He began telling stories, longer narratives, then he started doing the synopsis, right? What began with literally attempting to write a plot summary for a friend uh, to give some context to uh, the alliterative children of Corin uh, becomes ultimately the Quintus Silmarillion form, um, this, to use Christopher's delightful word, epitomizing form um, the plot summary genre, uh, as I've called it. Um, and then he shifts from that to, he, or rather, on top of that, begins to compile the annals, right? Where the annals are real, are t taking the flow of the narrative, but tracking it year by year so that he can, and it seems to have begun as a way to kind of keep track of those things, just to write a summary of the main events so that he can correlate it year by year and make sure he's keeping the chronology straight. But of course, as he does it, it expands, right? Until as we saw, especially here um, in the Annals of Amon and the Grey Annals, these latter versions of, um, um, sorry, the Annals of Valinor um, and the Annals of Beleriand, um, these later versions of the Annals, the revised versions that he did in the early 50s, um, they begin to expand and expand until you know, large sections of narrative and even dialogue come out of that. In fact, many of the, you know, sort of most famous and memorable moments of from the published Silmarillion emerge not in the context of his longer form stories, not in, even in the context of his Quintus Silmarillion, but in the context of the annals. But of course, in the process of this, they cease to really be like annals anymore. They cease to be a list of dates and events um, and become a, 
of sequential narrative, which is more or less, seems to be more or less duplicating what was going on in the Quinta. And we've seen some evidence over the course of the War of the Jewels that he hadn't given up on the idea of doing the Annals and the Quinta side by side, um, but that increasingly they seem to be kind of redundant and both of them being kind of overtaken by his desire as he went on in the post-Lord of the Rings period. Um, uh, being overtaken by the desire to write really long-form uh, stories and to be um, writing in a, in a very different kind of detail. Um, and uh, uh, the, the kind of in-depth world-building that he's done, again, this, if you know the nature of Middle-earth, is his uh, uh, you know, period of doing math to work out elvish genealogical tables and that kind of thing. Um, you know, all the work that he did on Elvis gestation periods and stuff like that uh, all comes from this period. Um, his desire to write this longer form narrative, and we began to see some of that um, even in the wanderings of Hurin. Um, and of course, his longer tale of Turin, um, which is sort of finally put together and published in long form by Christopher um, in, uh, in The Children of Hurin, uh, the volume The Children of Hurin. Um, but... Um, Anyway, that's um, uh, that's that's kind of where he's been. So then, at the end of all this, right? What does he do? <laughs> he starts writing the Tale of Years, right? Um, and uh, he originally worked on the Tale of Years. He did a version of the Tale of Years way back in 1937, but we see him coming back to that um, in 19 uh, uh, in 1950, and. Um, uh, and then we see him, we see him revising and developing this, which, which really did seem to be, since the annals have gotten out of hand, right? He wanted again just a list of dates, as clearly he was, he was. Uh, not only was he losing track in some ways of some of the dates, but he was changing things. Um, we talked about this when we were looking at the Maiglin narrative, which Christopher said was the last thing he, the last substantive narrative that he rewrote in full, um, was the Maiglin narrative, and it seems pretty clear why he select he chose that out, because Maiglin was the big problem um, when it came to figuring out Elvish maturation rates and all that stuff, how to fit the Maiglin narrative into the Elvish world building that he was doing at that time. Um, given the age of elves and how they count time and years and how they mature and everything else, um, how can Maeglin have enough time to be born in the midst of the Siege of Angband and yet still have time to grow up uh, and betray it and become, you know, the romantic rival of Tuor and, uh, and all that kind of thing. So, um, so we saw him reworking the, the, the Maeglin narrative. So in a, he was doing a lot of reworking of dates and things during this time. Moreover, he is getting to the point. He is looking ahead in the tale of years, at the end of the tale of years. He's looking ahead to the, the period where his narratives have kind of run out, where he has not rewritten stuff. He began, of course, as we all know, uh, to rework the tale of Gondolin, to do a, a, a new, longer version of the tale of the fall of Gondolin, but he didn't get anywhere close to finishing it, right? As we know uh, from Unfinished Tales, 
he got only to the point where Tuor was about to see Gondolin for the first time um, and then stopped and never returned to it. Um, so the tale of Gondolin was never reworked. That's one of the kind of most prominent things. But of course, there are many other parts that didn't get fully reworked because he never got past Turin. It's all Turin's fault, really, right? Because every time he was working on the Quenta or any of those things, he would get as far as the Turin story and then it would it would take over, right? And he would spend all this time working on and developing the the Turin uh, the Turin story. And he never really finished. After the Quenta in Olderinwa, which he wrote like in 1930, he never finished the Quenta to the end. And so it's not just, you know, details about the War of Wrath and the end of Morgoth and, um, and even forward to the end of Days and, and the Dagor Dagoroth and all that kind of thing. Um, not only do we not get that stuff, which we talked about some before, but even the latter stages of the Wars of Beleriand, um, such as, very prominently, the Fall of Doriath, as well as the Fall of Gondolin, right? So all that stuff is uncertain. He, he, he didn't write those narratives. He hasn't written anything on that since way, way back, since he included it in the Quentin Olderinwa, and he did a little bit in the sketch of the mythology, which is his first, earliest, shortest plot summary thing, and then, of course, what he wrote about it in the Book of Lost Tales ages ago, uh, back, you know, before 1920. And then, of course, there's more, right? Then there's the Arendel stuff, the stories of the voyages of Arendel, and what happens between the day when Arendel is taken as lord of the, you know, havens of, 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 of Balar down there where all the refugees live until Arendel um, arrives in Valinor and indeed returns from Valinor. Like, what happened there? What was going on there? Um, Tolkien had a notion in his early days. I mean, like, back in his 20s, he had a notion uh, to that there were lots and lots of stories there. You know, he wanted this whole saga of the epic voyage, you know, the adventures of Arendel at sea, right? This sort of... Uh, um, Odyssey-esque or like, uh, um, you know, larger version of the, you know, uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader-esque, you know, I guess sort of episodic, you know, adventures at sea um, set of stories with A. Arendel, right? Um, including, yes, David Michael, the never written A. Arendel versus Ungoliant prize fight commentary. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, we get some scattered notes about that, even in the Book of Lost Tales, but he never wrote those, like never wrote those stories. We get some notes about it way back in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, we get a couple like wavings in their direction um, in the Quentin Olderinwa, but we get very, very little. So um, the... There are a couple. Re there are a couple things for us to be looking at as we go through the different versions. Um, they're, they're, again, there are four basic stages of the tale of years as he's revising it here. And what I want to look at as we watch the development of his ideas over time, I want to be looking at things like what is he concerned about? What do we see him changing and tinkering with? Right? What does that tell us about what, where Tolkien's own creative energies? Are being focused during this time, right? Um, so, this is a thing that is really hard 
um, for us that I think actually kind of requires a lot of discipline on our part. Um, and you can see it even requires discipline on Christopher's part. Um, that is to say, it's really easy for us to read this and like, we have things we want Tolkien to say, right? Things that we wish he were doing. Um, the things which, like, again, like, requests we would put in. We would have put into Tolkien, right? Like, as you're working through the tale of years, this is a great opportunity for you to sort out some of the major plot points of this story. So even if we never get the stories told in full, we can at least know how you wanted the story to go, right? So, um... <clears throat> We'd appreciate it, Professor, if you would, uh, you know, take some time fleshing that out for us, right? Christopher is clearly hoping for that, too. But again, this is where I say it requires a little discipline, because we have to make sure that what we ourselves, that we don't let what we ourselves are rooting for um, cover over or distract us from um, what Tolkien's actually doing. Right. That is to say, we can't be looking so hard for the the evidence of the things that we want to see that we miss what he was doing. Right. We can't be pursuing our interests so hard that we fail to notice what he was interested in. Right. So that's one thing I want to be doing as we're going through the tale of years. Another thing I want to be doing is I want to be. Uh, taking this as, as I think, a very interesting instance of the larger, one of the biggest patterns that we've been looking at consistently throughout our discussion of the War of the Jewels. That is, what kind of stories is he interested in? Like, what what is, you know, the question I have been sort of comically asking is, like, what is this? What is this thing, right? We're asking that about the Grey Annals from the beginning. Like, what, what, what are we reading? What does Tolkien think he's doing, right? Um... What can we see about that? Not just in the tale of years itself, but in how the tale of years changes over time, right? What does Tolkien think he's doing? What is What does he think he's writing here? Um, what can we see about <clears throat> sort of the shifts in the narrative mode in that sense uh, of the tale of years? Um, and, um, and then, of course, we're going to be... We, I think it's perfectly fair for us to be thinking about sort of comparing and contrasting what we see in the tale of years with what we get in the published Silmarillion, especially in the chapter about the ruin of Doriath. Um, now, we're going to end this, and I have small hopes, some hopes, I have not no hope of getting to this tonight. Um, the section at the end of the tale of years where Christopher discusses this explicitly and gets into sort of quasi-confessional mode and tells us the story um, of, uh, um, uh, of what happened and how that chapter came about, right? Um, but of course, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting item because there have been many times um, it, it would have been too difficult, it would have taken too much I've added too much time to this discussion, um, so I'm, I kind of leave it to you to do this on your own. Um, for me to be bringing in passages from the published Silmarillion to kind of put alongside these um, to remind you. Um, but if you know the published Silmarillion, there will have been many points. We talked about this back in the Grey Annals, for instance, 
where passages, familiar passages, um, you know, the entire of men chapter, right? Where the, you know, the, the, the whole, anyway, the, lots of stuff has been emerging from the annals of Valinor and the, and the gray annals, um, uh, the, of the Sindar chapter, right? Um, and we both can sort of see where the text that Christopher took and placed into those chapters came from, um, but also we can kind of see a different context for it, which is really fascinating, right, uh, in Tolkien's drafts, where they, where they originally came up. Um, now, here, it's kind of a different thing, right? Instead of observing when those bubbles of familiar text, right, those, those familiar paragraphs that we know from the published Silmarillion, when those kind of rise to the surface so that we can see where Christopher took them from. Instead, what we're going to be seeing is mm, the void, <laughs> right? Like the, the absences which Christopher had to fill in, um, the mysteries which Christopher had to solve. Um, so we'll kind of take some note of that stuff as we go through the tale of years, and then we'll see. Uh, we'll come back to what Christopher describes about it there at the end. Um, all right. Without further ado, let's dig into things. Okay, so here's stage A. Now, the first thing to notice is how brief these entries are. This is really, it, it begins really as a list, right? Just trying to keep track of the years of the sun here in which these things happen. And what Christopher has given us here is all the later stuff, right? So we're going to be starting right around this same time, right around the year 500, um, all the way through. 500, Birth of Eärendil and Gondolin. 501, Making of the Nauglamir. Thingol quarrels with the dwarves. Okay. Um, note here that the Nauglamir itself, um, which has already changed its name, right, back in the old days, like back in the in the Book of Lost Tales, it was called the Nauglafring. Uh, it's now name has changed to the Nauglamir. Um, notice that in these versions of the story, the forging of the Nauglamir, you'll remember in the published Silmarillion, there's two stages, right? Um, there's the making of the Nauglamir for Finrod, Feligand, with his um, Valinorian gems, right? So you've got Nauglamir Mark I, um, the awesome version that Finrod has. And then you have, of course, remember in the published Silmarillion, we get that moment where Thingol is like, I got the Naglamir, I've got the Silmaril, right? Maybe if I put this chocolate and peanut butter together, we can make something awesome, right? Um, and then he approaches the dwarves, again, it's all in the published Silmarillion, he appro approaches the dwarves and is like, hey, could you do a thing here, right? Could you remake the Naglamir? And they're all like, dude, the Naglamir, that's like the greatest work of dwarf craftsmen ever. But we'll have a go, right? And they and they set out to make Naglamir Mark II, which goes from awesome as it was to like mind-blowingly spectacular. Um, uh, so glorious it imperils life and limb to be near it, kind of deal, right? Um, but again, the point here is that in this synopsis, the making it's there's just one making of the Naglamir, right? Um, that second making. The, the Silmaril is included in the Nauglamir from the very beginning, right? Um, there is no 
there's no pre-existing state for the Naglamir. Um, this is important, I think, important for two reasons. One, because of, again, just we should observe the difference in the, between the published Silmarillion version and this. Um, but second, this is enormously significant because of the role that the pre-existing Nauglifring played in the earlier story. Um, or rather, what it was wrapped up in, right? The story of the Nauglifring was about the, the curse of meme, right? The curse of meme was so important. Um, I mean, I've talked about this, I know. Uh, it was like, became almost more important than the Silmarils. The curse that Meme lays upon the gold of Nargothrond, and that's the gold that's then used to combine with the Silmaril um, in order to make the Nauglifring. Um, so that, that again, that, that the, make, the one-time making of the Nauglifring is, is, is not a new idea, it's an old idea. Um, but the, the Nauglifring was connected from the beginning. Like, it was the, the instrument of the curse of Meme and how the curse of Meme the dwarf um, does its harm everywhere, right? Um, and this sort of tragedy of having this, not only the this greatest artifact, this greatest working of the dwarves, um, but even the Silmaril itself, one of the Silmarils itself, uh, themselves being incorporated into this deadly, you know, uh, radioactive, spiritually radioactive thing, right, that would bring down whole kingdoms um, because of the power of the curse of Meme. Um, so, he is not here talking about... There's no reference to the curse, you'll notice here. He doesn't talk about the curse of Meme. That's really interesting, because it was so huge before, Right? But the idea of the Nauglamir being that essential bone of contention between Thingol and the dwarves is, is definitely implicit there. Okay, all right. 502. The dwarves invade Doriath. Thingol is slain and his realm ended. Melian returns to Valinor. Baron destroys the dwarf host at Rath Loriel. Baron destroying the dwarf host at Rath Loriel was the original version of that story. Like, that, that's what happened back in the Quentin Alderin version of the story. Um, Baron led an army of green elves um, who ambush the dwarves at the ford and kills them all. And it's called Rath Loriel, uh, which is like the golden ford because the gold, the cursed gold, ends up there, right, in the river. Um, okay, okay. Uh, Baron destroys the dwarf host at Wrath Loriel. 506, the second kin slaying. There you go. 507, the, the Doriath one, right? 507, the fall of Gondolin, death of King Turgon. 508, the gathering of the remnants of the elves at the mouths of Syrian is begun. 524, Tuor and Idril depart overseas. So we get, uh, you know, what, 16 years of... Um, you know, peace and happiness under Tuor and Idril and the the and Arendel and you know Arendel and Elwing are meeting and everything else, right? There's all so we got sixteen years, right, before Tuor and Idril take off, go out to sea. Five twenty-five, the voyages of Arendel begun. So that begins the phase of his adventuresome period, right, um, when he begins to sail the seas after his mom and dad take off. Um. Uh, oh yeah, Dolorous Stroke, the cursed gold in a river thing 
uh, the whole curse of meme business, it was extremely Nibelung adjacent. <laughs> extremely new. I mean, it was uh, very Germanic. Um, uh, never, never have Tolkien's dwarves seemed more, um, you know, Germanic epic than in the original story of the Nuglofring, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, right to voice Verendel, the third and last kinslaying. So this is when, uh, of course, the uh, the the uh, refuge of the mouths of Syrian gets wrecked. Uh, four years after the voyages begin, five thirty three. So again, that's four further years, right? So it's now been eight years since he began his voyaging. Half as much time as Tuor and Idril kind of led the refugees there in peace. Arendel comes to Valinor, five forty. 547 years after Arendel comes to Valinor. The last free elves and remnants of the fathers of men are driven out of Beleriand and take refuge in the Isle of Balar. 547, the host of the Valar comes up out of the west. So 14 years after Arendel's arrival in Valinor, the host of the Valar comes up out of the west. Fionwe, son of Manwe, lands in Beleriand with great power. 550 to 97 a 47-year war, a 50-year war from the time when they land, right? It takes three years before they really uh, get down to business, apparently. And yes, Fionnwe, son of Manwe. We talked about that. I know. I remember talking about that last time. Yeah, there we are. There we have it. Fionnwe, son of Manwe. The last war of the Elder Days and the Great Battle is begun. In this war, Beleriand is broken and destroyed. Morgoth is at last utterly overcome, and Angband is unroofed and unmade. Morgoth is bound, and the last two Silmarils are regained. 597. Mydros and Maglor, last surviving sons of Feanor, seize the Silmarils. Mydros perishes. The Silmarils are lost in fire and sea. 600. The elves and the fathers of men depart from Middle-earth and pass over sea. Here ends the first age of the children of Iluvatar. All right. So there's a lot in this which recalls older stuff, right? Um, um, we talked about the date of this last time. Um, this does seem to be the version that he does in 1950, but he's working very closely from the one that he did in 1937. Um, so he's uh, he's still incorporating things that you think you might not, right? Like Fionnwe, son of Manwe. But, um, but anyway, there it is. So there is a lot of, uh, a lot of older stuff. Though, again, what I'm noticing, one of the things that I'm noticing here, I get no reference to the Curse of Meme. Meme's name doesn't come up anywhere from 500 to 600, right? Um, so that does suggest to me a, a broadly different focus of the story from the version of the tale of the Nauglifring and the later version that, and the later stories that we got. I mean, the, the, even the voyage of Eärendil itself was being impacted by the curse of Meme, according to um, the the Book of Lost Tales versions. Um, but anyway, so he's easing back. And I'm not saying that the curse of Meme is not involved um, at all. I'm just saying the fact that it's not, not only is it not the whole story, it's not even alluded to in this, in these, in this passage, right? 
um, suggests that he is he is definitely at this point moving towards a significant reduction of that um, um, of that concept. Okay, stage B. Now we're we're revising. Five hundred one. Return of Hurin. 502. After seven years' service, Tuor weds Idril of Gondolin. Making of the Nauglamir. Thingol quarrels with the dwarves. 503. Birth of Eärendil in Gondolin. The dwarves invade Doriath. Thingol is slain and his realm ended. Melian takes Nauglamir to Baron and Luthien and then returns to Valinor. Kelegorm and Curafin destroy the dwarf host at Sarn Athrad in Rath Loriel and are wroth to find the Silmaril not there. Dior goes to Doriath. 505. Spring. Second death of Baron, and Luthien dies also. Dior Thingol's heir wears Silmaril, struck out, and returns to Doriath. 509. Spring. Second Kinslay. Last warning of Olmo to Gondolin. 510. The fall of Gondolin at midsummer. Death of King Turgon. 511. The gathering of the remnants of the elves at the mouths of Syrian is begun. Okay. It's not the all of stage B. But, um, so what do we notice that's happening here? Um, notice our entries are getting longer. Um, apart from the f- return of Hurin, <clears throat> there's, there are very few things that are just lists, right? This is not just a list. This is a much more thoroughgoing narrative, Right, we're getting a much clearer sense of the shape of the whole story, um, so it's it's growing a little bit. Right, um, what do we notice about? Um, yeah, we are getting dangerously close in places to dipping into a zoom-in narrative story. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, what do we notice about? So notice how he is kind of he is interested in one, and this is one of the reasons to do the tale of years. Right. Um, is to look more closely at the interweaving of these, well, I'll call them three stories, right? The story of Gondolin, the story of Baron, Luthien, and Doriath, and the story of the Sons of Fanor, right? Um, How these three things all kind of come together and how they line up with each other. Um... Like it's, I think it can't be any mistake here, or not a mistake, but it's not merely a coincidence, nor is it, I think, merely a sort of narrative necessity that he decides that the very year that Eärendil is born in Gondolin is the year in which Thingol is slain and the realm of Doriath is ended, right? Um, the so the 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 way that he's kind of overlaying these narratives together seems to me um, seems to be significant there um, and that he's really sort of showing how these things go together. Another thing that I would point out here um, the biggest change as far as like an actual alteration of the story that he not rather than just a, a more detail right that he's giving uh, in this portion um, so he um the biggest change is the introduction of the Feanorians, right? It's no longer Baron and the Grey Elves 
who are ambushing the dwarves as they return out of Doriath, having come from sacking Doriath, right? Um, and the, so the battle at Sarnathrat is no longer barren. It's now Kelegorm and Kurifin. Um, so uh, that's that's really interesting, right? Um, what does that do? What is the effect of that change? What does he gain by making that particular change to the narrative, right? Um, and um, I think what he gains from it is, I would say there's a thing that he gains and there's a thing that it suggests to me. The thing that he gains is it grants a little bit of um, narrative... I was going to say consistency, but that's not quite right. Immediacy? Force? Right? To the kinslaying stuff. Like, what... Without that, when we had before, right? I mean, if you look back... um, No, not forward. Back. Um, Making of the Nauglamir... Thingol quarrels with the dwarves. The dwarves invade Doria. Thingol is slain. Melian returns to Valinor. Baron destroys the dwarf host. The second kinslaying. Whoa. Okay. Um. That's kind of out of nowhere. I mean, it's not. We know the, the Silmarils there, right? It's legit. Um. But, you know, that shift. It's like a now for something completely different. Like you'll remember when I was reading through. I felt the impulse to remind you of the context, like what we're even talking about. Oh, remember, that's when the Feanorians attacked Doriath, right? Um, Because again, we're given no context. Now, in stage B, the idea that Kelegorm and Kurafin would ambush the dwarf host as it's returning from Doriath with the the loot, right? Um, You know, they've they've sacked Doriath and they're returning uh, to their mountains that Kelegorm and Kurafin would say... Okay, we're going to ambush them because they will have taken the Silmarill, right? This makes sense on a whole lot of levels, doesn't it? Right? Um, It's exactly what Kelegorm and Kurafin would do. And indeed, it even makes them... Well, I don't want to say sympathetic because Kelegorm and Kurafin rarely get to that level. But um, more understandable, right? I mean, you can see, can't you, how that's actually kind of a clever way of um, easing them into their villain role. The, the next stage, they were kind of villains in Baron and Luthien already, anyway. Of course, as we know, but uh, but no, I mean, but you see what I mean. Instead of just having the second kinsling come out of nowhere, right? Like we're just uh, uh, we're just gonna bust out and invade Doriath and kill lots of other elves because they won't give us the Silmaril back, right? Um, instead of having that just emerge and happen. And uh, instead, we have this middle stage where Kelegorm and Kurafin, hearing about the sack of Doriath, don't mourn because whatever, Thingol was a jerk and wouldn't give them the Silmarill anyway. Um, But what an opportunity, right? What an opportunity for them. Now they can regain the Silmarill without invading an elf kingdom, or doing any kinslaying because the dwarves did it for them. How convenient, right? So now they can ambush the dwarves, get back the Silmaril, no kin are slain, right? I mean, okay, yeah, that works. 
But they're foiled, right? Because they ambush the dwarves and they get no Silmaril, right? Um, no Silmaril. They don't care about the rest of the gold, whatever. They're wroth because the Silmaril isn't there. But now, right, now they've made a move. They've claimed the Silmaril. They've made a move to get the Silmaril back. They've, at least in their own minds, gotten close to the Like, they thought they were going to get the Silmaril. Like, it was, as far as they knew, just within their grasp, and now it's gone again. And it's much easier now, anyway, for me at least, to be able to see how that escalates quickly, right? Um, in their wrath and frustration at their plan not working out. And, oh man, you've, you're still going to withhold the Silmaril from us now? And how that moves on to the second kinslaying. Um, six years later, right? Not immediately. Um, so anyway, so that's one thing that I find really interesting about that. The second thing is, again, simply the way in which this change itself also really continues the shift in the narrative dynamic that I was already observing in stage A. Um, the shift that is away from the curse of meme and back to the Silmarils and the, and the, uh, the Oath of Thanor as the primary movers of events. Um, by replacing Beren with Caligorm and Kurafin, um, it accomplishes a couple different things, right? First, again, it it brings that focus to the Oath of Thanor. It brings the Oath of Thanor. Now, again, this is once again a story about the Silmarils and the Oath of Thanor, and that's what's going to dominate, you know, for the next, all the way up until Arendel gets to Valinor, right? Um, but the second thing that it does is it eases a tension that always seemed to me Baron's retirement after his resurrection, right? The published Silmarillion asks us asks us to believe, right? The story that it gives us is that Baron comes out of retirement on one occasion. Like, he doesn't fight any more battles after his return from death, except one, right? When the dwarves are coming out of Doriath, he does come out of retirement, rally the green elves near whom he and Luthien have been living, um, and fights a battle against the dwarves in order to regain the treasure, avenge Thingol. Um, especially when the Silmaril isn't there, which it isn't um, in this version of the story, uh, or stage A version of the story, it's hard to see what, what's motivating Baron. Again, vengeance, greed, um, spite against the dwarves. Well, I'm not going to let you have the treasure. It's, um, I mean, I'm not saying there's no sympathy at all there. I agree. Thingol was his father-in-law. One could understand him being a little bit upset, but it but as I say, I feel tension, anyway, between what I'm being asked to believe of Baron there. Like, really? Post-resurrection, Baron is going to be like, For vengeance! Let us slaughter the dwarves! I'm like, that's... It takes a lot of believing, as Ham Gamgee would say. Right? Now replace Baron and the Green Elves with Kelegorm and Kurafin and the army of the Feanorians, laying a, 
an ambush and slaughtering the dwarves wholesale in order to, in their attempt to recover the Silmaril. And I'll buy that for a dollar, right? I mean, yeah, that that tracks. Um, I got no problems whatsoever with that. And now Baron doesn't have to come out of retirement, right? Now Baron can stay in his sort of peaceful uh, um, post-resurrection, you know, retirement home, right? With, uh, you know, little retirement cottage with, uh, with Luthien. Um, th- I think there's a lot to like about this innovation in the narrative there. Um, notice also, I should have said this at the beginning when we were observing the increased detail here in stage B. Notice things like spring, spring, midsummer, right? Um, again, it's not just a list of this thing happened in this year. He's beginning to He's beginning to picture it in his head, right? Um, it's not Im- just important that Baron and Luthien die again in 505, in the year 505, right? It happens in the spring. That's that's important, right? It's like a whole narrative context there, right? And the same thing. Second Kinsling, that also has to happen in the spring. Again, I think you can picture... I believe when he writes the word spring in parentheses there, this is Tolkien himself visualizing this. He's imagining, like, what do the trees of Doriath look like as the Feanorian army is coming in? Um, you know, as Maedros is, is running through the forest there in Doriath, searching for the lost princes, the lost elf princes. You know, are the trees in bloom? Right? What's going on there? Um, yeah. So, uh, again, we can see he's he's investing more in this as he revises it. As, of course, should surprise no one. Right? Okay. Stage C. Third version. Return of Hurin from Captivity. 501. Return of Hurin from Captivity. He goes to Nargothrond and seizes the treasure of Glaurung. 502. Making of the Nauglamir. Thingol quarrels with the dwarves. 503. The dwar- Notice Meme not even mentioned there. Seizing the treasure of Glaurung and you'd never even know that Meme was involved. 503. The dwarves of Belagost and Nagrod invade Doriath. Thingol is slain and his realm ended. The dwarves carry off the dragon gold, but Melian escaped and carried off the Nauglamir and the Silmaril and brought it to Baron and Luthien. Then she returned to Valinor, but Luthien wore the Silmaril. Now Curafin and Caligorm, hearing of the sack of Menegroth, ambushed the dwarves at the fords of Askar and defeated them, but the dwarves cast the gold into the river, which was after named Rathloriel. Great was the chagrin of the sons of Feanor to discover that the Silmaril was not with the dwarves, but they dared not assail Luthien. Dior goes to Doriath and endeavors to reestablish the realm. 504 changed to 502. Tuor wedded Idril Celebrindal Torgon's daughter of Gondolin. He was going to move the wedding, right? But notice he's moving it back to 502. Why? I think because he wants, still wants the birth of Feyerindal to coincide with the fall of Doriath, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but they dared not assail Luthien. I agree, Scott. That is, that is pretty awesome. But they dared not assail Luthien. It's not just 
that they thought the optics would be really, really bad. It's not just because they knew that, you know, um, every elf would be against them if they did. No, they don't, they don't, because they're scared of Luthien. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, okay, so exactly, <laughs> Emily, because she'd kick their butts. Exactly right. Um, yes. Now, as we can see, as is hardly surprising, um, his, uh, his sliding into fuller narrative is advancing, right, more and more. Um, notice, I, I, there are several sentences in there which are beginning to sound exactly like the tone of the Quintus Silmarillion, right? I think in particular of great was the chagrin of the sons of Feanor to discover that the Silmaril was not with the dwarves, but they dared not assail Luthien, right? That's a, that's a full narrative sentence that could easily be in the Quinta. Again, notice the difference between that. Um, uh, even when he says, uh, Kelgorm and Kurifin destroy the dwarf host at Sarnathrad in Rathloriel and are wroth to find the Silmaril not there. There's a little hint um, the, to me, the most telling word in that sentence is the word wrath, right? Um, that tells me that he's not just, this is not just a note to himself or like a note. This is not like modern editor to modern reader, right? This is him, um, uh, you know, sort of writing within the idiom of the Silmarillion, even though it still is a pretty simple summary sentence in every other way, right? But no longer. Great was the chagrin of the sons of Feanor to discover that the Silmaril was not with the dwarves, but they dared not assail Luthien. Um, very, um, um, very much the tone and cadence of of the um, the Quinta Silmarillion style. But let's keep going. It's only the beginning of stage to see. 503, 505 changed to 503 because we want it to coincide with the fall of Doriath, presumably. Birth of Eärendil, half-elven in Gondolin. Spring. Everything happens in spring. Here a messenger brought the Silmaril by night to Dior and Doriath, and he wore it. And by its power, Doriath revived for a while. But it is believed that in this year, Luthien and Baron passed away, for they were never heard of again on earth. Mayhap the Silmaril hastened their end, for the flame of the beauty of Luthien as she wore it was too bright for mortal lands. Hear it again? Come on, that last mayhap, right? Mayhap the Silmaril hastened their end, for the flame of the beauty of Luthien as she wore it was too bright for mortal lands. Um, Tolkien has a really hard time just writing lists, right? Just listing events. He's uh, um, more and more indulging this uh, narrative mode, right? 511, changed to 509, the second kinslaying. The sons of Feanor assailed Dior, and he was slain. Slain also were Caligorm and Curafin and Cranthir. Eldon and Elrun, sons of Dior, were left in the woods to starve. Elwing escaped and came with the Silmaril to the mouths of Syrian. Olmo sends a last warning to Gondolin, which now alone is left. But Turgon will have no alliance with any after the kinslaying of Doriath. Maeglin, Aeol's son, sister son of Turgon, was taken in the hills and betrayed Gondolin to Morgoth. 512 changed to 510, the fall of Gondolin, death of King Turgon. Um, 
Yes. Oh, absolutely, David Michael, you are right. The um, um, the by night, very much story imagery. Yeah, you can see he's got that whole scene pictured in his head, right? Um, uh, here a messenger brought the Silmaro by night to Dior and Doriath, right? This is not just a, we're going to note that the Silmaro moved from this place to that place during this year, right? This is very much a... Um, an unenvisioned incident. Um, uh, and also notice how he's taking the death of Baron and Luthien. He's still ascribing it to a particular year, but notice how he's changed that. Right? From um, 505, spring, second death of Baron and Luthien dies also. Right? From that matter of fact, he's now gone to, but it is believed that in this year, Luthien and Baron passed away, for they were never heard of again on earth. Mayhap the Silmaril hastened their end, for the flame of the beauty of Luthien as she wore it was too bright for mortal lands. Right now we're, 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 um, we're, it is believed and, uh, mayhapping, right, in this, uh, in this sentence. That is, uh, not a certain, the whole point of the tale of years is to keep it tidy. Right to make a list of when exactly things actually happened, and now he's not only segueing into narrative; he's actually like defeating, quasi defeating the purpose of that by introducing this sort of uh, you know mythic sense of mystery to it. Right? It is believed that in this year, Luthien and Baron passed away. Um, Everett is wondering if there's a special reason that he uses sister son instead of neph- nephew. Um, etymological, I believe. He doesn't like the word nephew. Um, uh, sister son is a much more um, uh, Old English way of saying it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we get one... Um, yeah, I think... Nephew is from French. I'm not positive about that, but yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't like. He doesn't like the word nephew so much. Um, sister, son, much better, much more in keeping. Um, and I would say, by the way, um, there's another reason for this. Keep in mind, um, who's writing this text, or rather, how are we getting the tale of years? Who compiled? The Tale of Years. Alphalina, probably. Right? So, yeah. You want to make sure it has that uh, um, authentic Old English sound to it, you know? Um, all right. Okay. Notice that there's another significant change here. Almost sends a last warning to Gondolin. So, tours there. Mary Zidril, Arendel's born, and what, six years later? When Arendel is six, um, Omo sends another warning. But Turgon is like, no way. Turgon will have no alliance. I, 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 I'm sure Christopher must be right when he says, um, uh, Remember, 
Christopher's gloss on this statement, but Targon will have no alliance with any, like with any what, right? Um, the, one of the other versions, he says, with any of the sons of Fanor. Um, and I, I'm sure that's what Tolkien meant there. But Targon will have no alliance with any son of Fanor after the kinslaying of Doriath. Um, yeah. JJ, it is also true that Sister Son gives you more information because the Sister Son and a, and a Brother Son are, are totally different. Um, politically speaking, um, uh, gosh, I once heard uh, in one of our um, Signum MA courses that I did with Tom Shippey years ago. Gosh, it was about 10 years ago now, almost exactly 10 years ago. The Beyond Middle Earth course, I think it was. Um, Tom gave this whole lecture portion on the difference between your maternal and your paternal uncles. In, uh, in in Anglo-Saxon society, like it was a it was a big deal, um, uh, you know, one are potential rivals and one are like definite allies, and it's like there's a it's a whole thing. <laughs> like so, sister son doesn't just it's not just a fancy way of saying nephew uh, and avoiding you know the French word. It's um uh, it's also it, it it sister son is in a different category from brother son. Um. Uh, like your brother's son might kill you to get your inheritance, <laughs> right? Your sister's son is safe, <laughs> right? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, even in even in the Lord of the Rings, you can sort of see this, right? Aemir is the heir of um, of Theoden, but because he's his sister's son, he's clearly like the heir of gift, right? It's not like the presumptive heir. He wasn't like Theodred's rival. Which he would have been if he was his brother's son, right? If they if Theoden has one son and then his he has a brother who has a son, then like you know, there's been there have been knifings for the, in that kind of situation in the you know in in, in the past. So um, instead of creating a situation where Aemir is like the presumptive heir and there's like any kind of he makes instead Aemir is just like you know, his right hand dude who is in his, who's close enough to him as his sister son in his family. Um, especially because of course, in the case with Thad and, and Amy, he was fostered within, um, within his house, right. As his, as, as if he were his own son, but he's not right. Um, so again, there's no rivalry between him and Theodred. Um, uh, but yet, uh, yeah, and so it, it sort of emphasizes sort of Theoden's gift, right? Anyway, this is, um, uh, it is it's it is another reason why it's important and why sister son is uh uh preferable in that way um to uh um and of course in this case notice that Maiguin is sister son of Turgon um remember Maiguin's position in the succession is a question right um and his presumption Right, that he as sister son would presume to like want to be the heir of the king, right, um, and try to like use that to make himself the and then become a rival to and in fact try to kill um, Eärendil um, as the grandson of the king, who would be now the presumptive heir. Um, it's it, it just shows like um, Maeglin is as. Um, Maeglin is as as bad a sister son as he is a cousin, right? Um, his uh, his actions 
his political machinations to try to seize power are as unnatural um, and inappropriate as his sexual desire for his first cousin. Right. Anyway, so there's a bunch of that weight involved in Sister Son, I believe. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway, let's keep going. Because we do keep going, right? Yes, we do. 513 changed to 511. Tuor and Idril bring Arendel and the remnant of Gondolin to the mouths of Syrians. So that is right the year after the fall of Gondolin, so we move that back. Okay. Um, now notice these changes are all things that, like, he wrote them out with the original dates, and then he goes back and crosses out the dates and writes new ones. So this is, he's rethinking some of these things, right? That means, of course, rem that this third time that he did this, he originally chose to separate um, the uh, uh, the birth of Arendel from the downfall of Doriath, right? Ori you know, he, he originally had those in sequential years. Making of the Naglamir, 502. Follow Doriath, 503. Wedding of Tuor and Idril, 504. Birth of Arendel, 505. And then afterwards, he's like, nah, can't have it. Right. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go back. I gotta, I, I gotta bump the, I, I want those back where they were. Right. I want those overlapping, not sequential. And now those changes are kind of working through. Um, okay, to our initial bring Arendel and the remnant of Gondolin to the mouth of Syrian, 527. So our years of peace change. And notice he changes it again. So 513 to 527. So we were had 14 years of peace now. Um, the, notice he ups that to 19 years as he shifts this forward to 530 while he's shifting the original arrival at, at uh, Mouth of Syrian back to 511. So um, he ups it to 19 years of peace before Eärendil weds Elwing. Unquiet of Olmo comes upon Tuor. Uh, Tuor and Idril depart over sea and are heard of no more on earth. Now, he retains the mystery about what happens to Tuor and Idril, right? But notice the shift there um, from stage A. Uh, where was it here? Um, to our initial depart over sea. Uh, why? Where are they going? What's the, what's their, we get nothing, right? No explanation whatsoever. Now, unquiet of Olmo comes upon Tour. To our initial depart over sea. Same sentence as before, right? And are heard of no more on earth. Once again, that Quenta phrasing style there, right? Okay, now we got 528, which he changed to 530, but then clearly changes again when he changed this other one to 530. Um, he still wants the four years. He wants to give Arendel and Elwing still a few years of marriage before Arendel goes to sea. Um, okay. Added entry. So he squeezes this into the margin. 528. Change to 532. Elros and Elrond, twin sons of Arendel born. Okay, so we're going to have Elros and Elrond born before Arendel takes off. That seems like a good idea. 532. Change to 534. Change to 538. Because now we're, again, adapting to these earlier changes. The third and last kinslaying. The havens of Syrian destroyed, and Elros and Elrond, sons of Arendel, taken captive, but are fostered with care by Mithros. Elwing carries away the Silmaril and comes to Arendel, Arendel with an E, changed to Arendel with an I, in the likeness of a bird. 
536, change to 40, change to 42, Arendel comes to Valinor. Now, I don't want to lean into this too much. Um, that's just a, um, it's just a, it's just a mistake, right? The E-L, E-A-R-E-N-D-L at the end, right? Um, that was the original way he spelled it. That's the old way. That's the Book of Lost Tales spelling of Arendel. He changes it to Arendil later on. And like many of this kind of spelling change, and then this has to do with the way in which the Elvish languages have evolved in Tolkien's mind since then, right? Um, it's not just like, oh, I, I like it better with an I, right? That's maybe how you or I might think. That is not how Tolkien thought, right? Um, it is instead because... The, there would be a whole... Tolkien could give a whole explanation for why it has to be an I instead of an E. But he made a mistake. He reverted to the old form in this paragraph here. Right? He did it again. Arendel taken captive. Sons of Arendel taken captive. Right? Um, before he... and it, Whereas he was I-L until that point, And is I-L again afterwards. Right? Um, no, he did not make up that name. Yes, it came from the poem Creased and was spelled with an E-L. There. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that doesn't stop Tolkien, of course, from inventing an entire, um, not only an entire etymology for Eärendo as an Elvish name, right, but an entire, you know, history of the language which would explain every point of how the name Arendel came about, right? Um, so yes, yes, that is the older version. Um, and it is the same as Christ, with an E, um, as, as from the poem Christ. But anyway, okay. Um, as I say, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to lean too heavily on this, but it's fascinating to me. That's a, it's an interesting slip, I think. To me, it's an interesting slip. Um, what I'm tempted to say about it, I don't know that that slip is enough to justify this kind of a reading, but there are several places where he seems to be... He seems to be thinking... I mean, he is in this stuff, in these later parts of the Tale of Years. He is engaging with stories and material that he's not worked with since the Book of Lost Tales. Um, like, he's in a very <laughs> Lost Tales frame of mind, right? Um, this is, in many ways, him returning to these stories and these events it's for the first time in, like, 20 years, right? And so that he slips into using the version of Arendel's name that he's not used in 20 years in the midst of that kind of doesn't surprise me in that way. Um you know, I, I'd have a hard time really leaning upon this as, like, evidence of a point. But if I did, I would say that it suggests to me evidence that he is, at many points in doing um, the Tale of Years, kind of re-entering the mindset of the Book of Lost Tales. Which brings me back to Fionway, Son of Manway, from Stage A. Right? Um... 
he seems to have changed his mind about the uh, Valar having kids before 1950 when he comes back and rewrites that. Yes, he was working from and kind of making a fair copy of a 1937 version, but he wouldn't keep that kind of thing blindly. Like, he wouldn't just be like, yeah, this is all junk now, right? I've totally changed my world building since then, and so, uh, you know, my world concept, and so... uh, If that were true, he wouldn't keep it, right? But the fact that he kept that passage in there, Fionnwe, son of Manwe, uh, that, to me, is a bigger piece of evidence of him kind of getting into a Book of Lost Tales frame of mind when he was writing this. Um, But, um... Okay, anyway, uh, let's go up to stage D, the fourth version. 501. Hurin is released from captivity. He goes to Nargothrond and seizes the treasure of Glaurung. He takes the treasure to Menegroth and casts it at the feet of Thingol. 502. The Nauglamir is wrought of the treasure of Glaurung, and the Silmaril is hung thereon. Thingol quarrels with the dwarves who had wrought for him the necklace. 503. The dwarves of Belagost and Nogrod invade Doriath. King Eluthingol is slain and his realm ended. Melian escapes and carries away the Nauglamir and the Silmaril and brings them to Baron and Luthien. She then forsook Middle-earth and returned to Valinor. Okay, notice again the flow of this, right? Um, he's, the events he's describing are the same as the events described before. But now, where, where what we were seeing before in stage B, um, especially in stage B, like in stage A, we were seeing mostly the list, right? Here are the events. Boom, 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 right? Um, stage B, we were still getting a lot of that with some little details, like this happened in spring, right? Um, and a few sentences, right? And are wroth to find the Silmaril not there, right? These moments that kind of begin to kind of jump out. In C, we get a lot more narrative, but we still are get, but still the basic sort of spine of it, right? Are those lists? Return of Hurin from captivity, making of the Nauglamir, sentence fragments, right? Like you would see in a a list, right? Not even complete sentences. Making of the Nauglamir, Thingol quarrels with the dwarves even though we're getting these sentences and paragraphs that begin, that that sound much more in that narrative mode now here in 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 stage d no sentence fragments anymore right um instead of hurin released from captivity we get a complete sentence and then we follow it up he goes to nargathrond and seizes the treasure of glaurung he takes the treasure to menagroth and casts it at the feet of thingol we get no real change, no real um, new narrative there. But there's a now in stage D a thoroughgoing commitment to narrative, right? Um, this is so remember D1 and D2 are D1 is the typescript, and then the typescript ends, and then he um, continues it by hand, um, presumably later, right? Um, okay. Um, Yes, you're right, David Michael. This is the first time that it is said ex- that he says explicitly um, 
that the Naglamir is wrought of the treasure of Glaurung and the Silmarillas hung thereon. We still get no reference to Meme and his curse, right? Um, that is still a non-factor here, which again, huge news, right? Um, but um, but yeah, yeah. And, and I would say, David Michael, this suggests to me not that, you know, he's bringing that in here and it wasn't involved before, but that's exactly the kind of um, connective tissue he was not doing before, right? I mean, it was just Horin brings the gold. Now Gwimir made, right? You don't you don't need to spell the cause and effect and and you know like the, the that that kind of connective tissue is what narrative is, right? Not chronology list, right? Um, but now he's not content to do that anymore. Now we get the full connective tissue. This, by the way, this is still five hundred three. We're now getting paragraphs <laughs> within the years. Corifin and Kelligorm, hearing of the sack of Menegroth, ambushed the dwarves at the fords of Askar as they sought to carry off the dragon gold to the mountains. The dwarves were defeated with great loss, but they cast the gold into the river, which was thereafter, which was therefore after, named Rathloriel. Great was the anger of the sons of Feanor to discover that the Silmaril was not with the dwarves, but they dared not to assail Luthien. Dior goes to Doriath and endeavors to recover the realm of Thingol. In this year, or according to others in the year before, Tuor wedded Idril Celebrindal, Turgon's daughter of Gondolin, and in the spring of the year after was born in Gondolin Eärendil Hathelven. And then he strikes out this paragraph and says, no, this must be placed in 502, <laughs> right? Once again, he's, he's insistent. He, he tried to do it sequential again, right? Um, notice also how he's once more appealing to that, um, according to others, right? That, that sort of uh, uncertainty. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. Right. David Michael, and you're right. It's not they're not just Roth. Right. So it's just the one word uh, creeping in. It's now great was their anger. Right. The whole the whole narrative flow. Right. In the autumn of this year, a messenger brought by night the Silmaril to Dior in Doriath. And now we don't even get the notice. He doesn't even talk about the death of Baron and Luthien. It's left completely mysterious. We did get, yes. I mean, it's implied, right? Because we get the uh, Melian carries away the Nauglamir and the Silmaril and brings them to Baron and Luthien. So you know, Baron and Luthien have them, right? And then Dior leaves them and goes to Doriath and, and endeavors to recover the realm of Thingol. And then a messenger brought by night the Silmaril to Dior and Doriath. No comment on what that implies. Right. So now the uh, instead of saying, yeah, this is when Baron Luthien die, um, he first cloaked it in mystery and 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 myth and now is completely silent about it, which is actively inimical to the entire project of making a tale of years. Right. Um uh, you're not supposed to just imply what may have happened in a given year, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, David Michael, he shifts it to autumn. And I agree. I think that he shifts it to autumn in order to increase. He, he's like um, implying more heavily, right? Um, 
you're leaning into that, uh, the implication rather of the, uh, of their death of the end of that, you know, the summertime, uh, you know, the autumn of, uh, Baron and Luthien has come to an end. Winter now returns. Remember, we got that, that very metaphorical structure in the winter of Thingol, remember, that is, uh, healed by, you know, healed by Luthien upon her return. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, now here's his continuation, his handwritten continuation. 503. Elwing the White, daughter of Dior, born in Osiriand. 504. Dior returns to Doriath, and with the power of the Silmaril, restores it, but Melian departed to Valinor. Dior now publicly wore the Nauglamir and the Jewel. 505. The sons of Feanor, hearing news of the Silmaril that it is in Doriath, hold council. Maedros restrains his brethren, but a message is sent to Dior demanding the jewel. Dior returns no answer. I can remember how we just got in stage A. We just got completely out of nowhere. Second kinslang, right? Then we got the intervention of the Feanorians at the ford, uh, fighting the dwarves in order to build up um, their active interest, their military intervention, seeking the Silmaril and their frustration, right? And now we're getting the whole build-up, right? 506. Caligorn inflames the brethren, and they prepare an assault on Doriath. They come up at unawares in winter. Again with the seasons, right? Um, yeah. 506 to 507. At Yule, Dior fought the sons of Feanor on the east marches of Doriath and was slain. There fell also Caligorn, by Dior's hand, and Curifin, and Cranthir. The cruel servants of Caligorn seize Dior's sons, Elrond and Eldun, and leave them to starve in the forest. Nothing certain is known of their fate, but some say that the birds succored them and led them to Asir. In the margin, Maedros repenting seeks unavailingly for the children of Dior. The Lady Lindis escaped with Elwing, and came hardly to Asir with the necklace and the jewel. Thence, hearing the rumor, she fled to the havens of Syrian. 509. Maegwen captured by spies of Melkor. Sauron? 510. Midsummer. Assault and sack of Gondolin, owing to treachery of Maegwen, who revealed where it lay. So, let me not, um, let me not pass over that really fascinating little tidbit. Right. The Sauron? Question mark. Remember what happens to Sauron in the Silmarillion after his defeat by Luthien and Huon. Remember what happens to Sauron afterwards? Nothing. Right? He flies away in the form of a bat dripping blood, and we never hear from him again. Never hear about him again. Um, until the Akalabeth, right? Um... So here we see Tolkien imagining. Tolkien is returning to this question. It's, Sauron has only been growing in importance, you know, since the beginning, right? Um, he needs to account for Sauron. What's Sauron up to? He's not been doing nothing, right? So um, his suggestion here is that 
Sauron was instrumental in the fall of Gondolin by being the one who captured Maeglin and uh, brings Maeglin before Morgoth and uh, brings about his treachery. 511, exiles of Gondolin, Tuor, Idril, and Eärendil, etc., reach Sirion, which now prospers in the power of the Silmaril. 512, sons of Feanor learn of the uprising of the New Havens, and that the Silmaril is there, but Maedros forswears his oath. 525, 14 quiet years. The unquiet of Olmo came upon Tuor, and he built a ship, Earame, and departed into the west with Idril and Veronwe and is heard of in no tale since. Eärendil wedded Elwing, and became lord of the men of the Havens. Um, by the way, I, um, I, <laughs> I kind of enjoy the implication, which is sort of latent through all four stages of this story, that, um, um, Eärendil and Elwing don't get married until Eärendil's parents take off, <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to miss mom and dad. I mean, like, did they not approve or something? Did, like, uh, you know, Idril and Elwing not get along or something? And it wasn't until the father and mother-in-law are out of the picture <laughs> that Elwing makes her move? I don't know. But um, it's it's just interesting to me that um, the two of them get always get married, in this case, very promptly, as soon as, like, no sooner to, to, or, and it, bye, mom and dad, see you later, okay, you know, let's start planning the wedding, um, yeah, <laughs> that's, I just, again, I'm not trying to throw shade on their wedding, I, I, I don't think there's anything sketchy there, I just, I, I just, I find that really interesting, um, interesting because I would have, it subdivides the time there like into three stages, basically. Like, well, I'm thinking like the peaceful years before the third kinslaying, right? There is a, a post third kinslaying, you know, like final miserable survival mode uh, thing, right? But, um, but prior to the third kinslaying, it, it, it divides the time of peace between the, the, the establishment of this final refuge um, by the mouths of Syrian and the third kinsling. It divides that in half, right? We get the Tuor and Idril phase in which Tuor and Idril are like sort of in charge of things, right? And then the Eärendil and Elwing phase. And the fact that the... I mean, I would have thought that maybe A. Randall and Elwing would have gotten married during that first period of peace. Like, why, you know, under the, you know, watchful and loving eyes of Tuor and Idril, right? The two, they get married and, and, um, but no, that's a, it's a separate stage. It's a separate story, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Arthur, uh, Kelligorm's name, uh, Kelligorm with an M. Is later. I don't remember exactly when that changes. Um, yeah, I don't remember exactly when that changes. This, by the way, is a kind of thing that Christopher did a lot, was regularize the spelling of names, which change over time. Um, he kind of chose one, and uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I know that, that as Chad is pointing out, Kelligorn is the uh, is the oldest the older version, which is again why 
Christopher used the M version, Kelegorm, in the published Silmarillion. Um, but notice there's a lot of older versions of the names being used here. Mydros as well. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, Torment fell upon Mydros and his brethren, Maglor, Damrod, and Dirio. That's Amrod and Amros for those keeping score at home, because of their unfulfilled oath. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, notice again, one of the things that's to me very, very pronounced in stage four here, as he's giving rein more fully to his narrative impulse here. And this is slowly becoming another set of annals, just like and the same thing is happening to this that was happening to the annals. Um, what we what we see about this story is that it shifts more and more explicitly. Um, notice how prominently this story is now a story of the Feanorians, right? The curse of Feanor and the struggle for the Silmaril has really taken center stage all the way back, you know, in the TypeScript version of D. Um, when we get Kurafin and Kelgorm um, ambushing the dwarves, right? All the way through to the, like, the the stages and the debates and Mydros trying to restrain them, but Kelgorm and Kurafin out for blood and Dior defying them, right? The whole build up to the second kinslaying. And then the response afterwards and uh, uh, um, Mylos's repentance and, uh, you know, trouble among them, even to now he's forswearing his oath, right? He hears of the uprising of the New Haven, he hears that the Silmaril is there. Not only does Mythros say, okay, but you know what? I'm gonna, um, I'm going cold turkey again, right? He has to get a new badge, right? Have not, you know, it's now, it's been, hi, my name is Mythros, it's been, you know, um, what has it been now exactly in stage D? We can we can we can fill it out. When was the Kinsling? Um Yeah, five oh six. Okay, it's been six years, right? It's been six years since I last slew one of my kin, right? He fell off the wagon six years ago, but you know, it's 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 now he's been clean for six years again. Um he's not just trying to stay clean. He forswears his oath. This is a big deal, right? He's forswearing his oath. He he's he is um, not just resisting it. He has taken the apt, active step to say, "I am not going." He's taking an oath to not follow the oath, right? Um, and uh, and then torment falls upon Mydros and his brethren because of their unfulfilled oath, right? The story of the Oath of Feanor continuing to work, continuing to... Um, so J.J. says, can he do that? Uh, not successfully, apparently, right? Um, it's not going to work out. But again, again, my point is, if this is a, a unified narrative that Tolkien is forming here, the, the story, the primary story, it seems to me to be the story of the sons of Feanor and of the oath of Feanor and how the oath of Feanor continues to work and continues to wreck things. Right? It really takes central stage, center stage. Okay. 
we've come to Christopher's note on chapter 22 of the ruin of the ruin of Doriath in the published Silmarillion. Um, but we're all also almost at the end of time. We have a few more minutes. I could talk about this some, but it seems dumb to begin this section. I have a few slides that I want to go through a good deal of what Christopher says here, because I think this is a really fascinating moment. Um, one of these moments, we've, which we've gotten several times in the War of the Jewels, of Christopher looking back at his editorial choices in doing the published Silmarillion, which he's now, um, gosh, what is he? Um, 20 years, Christopher? 20 years removed from that? What's the, what's the date? I always forget the dates of these. When was the War of the Jewels published? What do we got? We got um, 94. Okay. So, yeah, pretty close. I mean, he's 20 years from the beginning of the process of, uh, of doing that. So, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's, it's pretty close. It's pretty cool. Okay, so we'll get to the, But I want to rush through this. I don't want to try to rush through this in five minutes. Um, so let's save this. We'll do this at the beginning next time. Um, I'm going to warn you in advance. I have a few things to observe. There are some things that I find really fun about the, um, you know, the last, the Quendi and Eldar part four of this book. But, um, but I'm not going to lie. I am no philologist. And most of it is way over my head. Um, like, I um, I am not going to be able to answer most anybody's questions about this section. I barely know enough to follow along with what Tolkien is saying and doing um, in those sections. And so I... Um, here's what I'm going to... What I am going to do, though. What I am interested in. Um, what I want to do um, is I want to... I want to look at the relay, what we can see, um, the illustra the way that we can see illustrated in this long section, which he's just going through etymologies and, um, and, you know, shifts in, and comparative languages and things for these particular words and particular word elements. Um, Tolkien talked about how his stories all emerged from his languages. It began with the languages and him making up the languages and the stories came from that. We talked about that. Um, you know, I talked about how much more clearly I could see that after our discussions um, of the Hlamas, the Tree of uh, the tree of Tongues, back in, I think, was it Volume 5? Um, or Volume 4, I can't remember which. But anyway, back then when we were looking at that, um, that we I could begin to see that so much more clearly after we were studying that together. Um, what I want to look at, what I am in, what I am, what my primary interest, what I'm going to focus on as we go through part four uh, of the War of the Jewels, briefly, um, not in great detail, um, is are those moments when we can begin to see this again, when we can begin to see the the way that the sort of symbiosis between Tolkien's development of his languages. Uh, his invented languages and the development, the growth of his stories, um, the ways in which we can see these two things kind of working together and sort of uh, informing each other. And I think we can see some glimpses of those things uh, when we go through and read um, 
uh, read the uh, the etymologies. So, um, anyway, um, that's what I'm going to be focused on. So don't expect a thorough explanation because I, I don't have it to give. It is above it is above my uh, uh, my own understanding. Um, uh, but but we will talk through some some. Uh, tidbits here and there um, through that through part four that I think are really interesting, but I'm not planning on spending that long on it. So it is my hope and plan that next week will be our final uh, session on the War of the Jewels. Remember, coming up next is going to be um, "Till We Have Faces" by C.S. Lewis, the greatest work of fiction ever written by C.S. Lewis, um, and. Um, we're going to, um, I don't have a date yet, Tomas. I'll try to have that, a plan for that for you for next week. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a break, um, but then we'll come back probably in September, uh, to begin, um, till we have faces, but I'll, I'll, I'll have that for you more, uh, more, more certainly, but, but the, my hope and plan is to finish the war of the jewels next week. All right. Thanks everybody for joining me and I will see you next week for the end of the war of the jewels. Talk to you later. Bye now.